0: You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Dear God, thank you for this day and thank you that it's Friday and that tomorrow is Sabbath and um, maybe a chance to relax a little more and spend more time with our friends and our family while we're here at Camp Meeting. I ask that you would be with us today as we're presenting Help Chet and I to present material clearly and quickly, um, and just give us the right words to say, and be with each and every person in this room, and just um, help the messages that they hear while they're here at Camp Meeting to speak to their hearts, and help them to um, make decisions for their lives. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Okay, I think most of you have been here all week. Um, There's a few new faces. Uh, my name is Melissa. I used to be an elementary school teacher, elementary and middle school, um, and now I stay home with my children. I help work on the farm, and I write for the Adventist Agriculture Association. And
1: and I'm I'm Chet. Uh, I'm a emergency department registered nurse, and uh, so I do that full time. And then we work on the farm as a part time gig as well. So. So that's pretty much me.
0: All right, so what we're going to talk about today is why does country living matter and what can I do to provide that experience to my child?
1: So why it matters, Uh, when you live in the country, life can be lived at a little bit slower pace. Uh, Truly, even when you're busy with farm chores, life is still a little slower. This is because as we spend time preparing the soil, weeding, watering, cleaning up after animals, we do have time to think, reflect, plan, and imagine, right? So even though we might be busy doing these chores, even when I'm spending hours, Monday I spent like 10 hours weeding garlic, um, you have the time to be able to reflect and imagine and, and allow your senses to open to the area around you. I mean, I had a deer coming in looking... Pretty sure she was looking for her fawn because she snorted at me multiple times so um, around. Farm, so farm garden work teaches valuable skills. And there's many practical skills that are learned, such as how to start seedlings, grow your own food, how to build things, how to fix things. Also, it allows you the opportunity to be more self-sustainable. God didn't call us to live, self, to live self-sustainable lives and to live like hermits, right? A lot of people today say, wow, the world's getting really bad. Let's go ahead and be self-sustainable. Let's have our own electricity. Let's be able to save our own food. And so when the world gets really bad, let's just have, have guards around, and we're going to keep our own stuff, and everybody's going to stay away. I don't believe God really planned us, us as Adventists, us as Christians, to be that way. God plan, wants us to be self-sustainable. He wants us to be prepared for things to be really bad. But in order that we can be a light to our community, we can say, come into our home. We have, we have food to share with you. Come into our home. We can share with you how you can grow these things, how you can survive in a, in a world that maybe where resources are, are less bountiful. right?" So preparing to be self-sustainable in a way to be a light to your community, I think that's what God really wants us to be doing. And you know, living life in the country and getting into the dirt actually scientifically greatly benefits our overall health, mentally and physically. Soil reduces depression. There's multiple different studies on how soil reduces depression. One of the mycobacterium in soil is full of mycobacteria, especially that hasn't been had lots of chemicals around up on it. Um, mycobacterium, if you look at it under a microscope, is just teeming. The soil is teeming with life. And one of these is Mycobacterium uh, vacae. I'm not sure how to say it exactly. But in one study in 2004, it improved cancer patients' quality of life. Their depression was dramatically decreased when they gave them this Mycobacterium, which is found in your soil. Okay? Did their lives live longer? Because of their cancer? No, it did not. Not because of it. But their lives were dramatically increased. They had less depression during that period of time because of taking this mycobacterium. The same mycobacterium, um, when they tested it on mice, promoted active stress coping and reduced general and social anxiety in mice. It was very significantly reduced their social anxiety and their general stress by just having this mycobacterium. So when your child eats dirt it might actually be a really good thing to an extent. So check this out. All of you who want to make sure your house is super, super clean and there's no, there's no pet dander or anything like that, well, a little dirtiness isn't always a bad thing. Infants who grew up in homes with cat and rodent dander and cockroach droppings were three times less likely to develop wheezing at the age of three than those who didn't grow up with all three allergens. I'm not saying to not try and keep your house somewhat clean. But what I am saying is we have been, in this society, been making sure we alcohol our hands so much, making sure our kids aren't exposed to anything, any, don't, don't touch that dirt, don't touch that on the ground, you know, leave that alone. Um, cat, cats are bad, dogs are bad, You know, my kid's allergic to this. They found that it was when infants between the ages of zero and one when they were exposed to animals and things that were a little bit dirtier, they were three times less likely to develop significant allergies and asthma. And so another study showed Amish children are much less susceptible to acquiring allergies. A new study involved, this was uh, 2020, I believe, A new study involved 157 Amish children in the US, 3,000 Swiss farm children, and 11,000 Swiss children not on farms. The researchers chose to compare Amish children to Swiss children because many Amish people immigrated from Switzerland in the late 1800s. Only 5% of the Amish children had ever received a diagnosis of asthma. And only 0.6% have been diagnosed with hay fever at some point in their lives. Among the Swiss farm children, Seven percent had been diagnosed with asthma, and three percent with hay fever. Of those not on farms, compared to the seven percent that had been diagnosed with asthma, those not on farms, eleven percent had been diagnosed with asthma, and twelve percent had been diagnosed with hay fever, up from three percent. Okay, when it came now, here's an actual scientific test. When it came to testing positive on skin or blood tests for dust mites, ragweed or other allergens. So they actually tested them, the differences were dramatic. 44% of the non a total of 44% and 25% of the Swiss non-farm kids and farm kids respectively showed sensitivity to allergens. All right? So those who were those who were not on farms, 44% were sensitive to allergens. Those who were on farms in Switzerland, 25% were sensitive to allergens, but of the Amish kids, and I know it's a smaller group and so you have to take that into consideration, but only 7% of the Amish farm kids were tested sensitive to allergens. They say likely this is because they're, they have, there's some different reasons to it. Some of them have been really in touch with a lot of animals, right, as, as kids from birth and up through. They're in their gardens. And they don't clean their foods as much. You know how we wash our foods in the supermarkets make sure they're washed really well? Like a lot of their foods aren't washed really well, and they do get some dirt on them. Uh, and another reason, too, they, they said was they actually they, they drink the cow's milk. Now, I'm not a big fan, a fan of dairy. I'll be honest with you. I don't, I don't encourage it. I don't promote it. Um, but that was another reason. They said, you know, there's some reasons why. But if you look at this study and you look at the study of the infants, of, like with the cat nander and dog nander you find that having exposure to animals and then the dirt, having exposure to dirt can actually decrease your kid's uh, susceptibility to allergies. So getting out in the country, having pets, getting in the dirt, letting your kid get really dirty is a really good thing. This quote says, The going theory is the early exposure to the diverse potential allergens and pathogens on a farm trains the immune system to recognize them but not overreact to the harmless ones. And that's Carrie Grant's.
0: So again as we've seen some of the scientific reasons um, for why farm and country living is beneficial, uh, I want to just look a little bit at what Ellen White says. In Adventist Home she says, Jesus came to this earth to accomplish the greatest work ever accomplished among men. He came as God's ambassador to show us how to live so as to secure life's best results. What were the conditions chosen by the infinite father for his son a secluded home in the Galilean hills, a house sustained by honest, self-respecting labor, a life of simplicity, daily comfort, daily conflict with difficulty and hardship, self-sacrifice, economy, and patient, gladsome service, the hour of study at his mother's side with the open scroll of Scripture, the quiet of dawn or twilight in the Green Valley, the hold ministries of nature, the study of creation and providence, and the soul's communion with God. These were the conditions and opportunities of the early life of Jesus. And to continue, it says, So with the great majority of the best and noblest men of all ages, read the history of Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph, of Moses, David, and Elisha. Study the lives of men later times who have been most worthily filled with positions of trust and responsibility. Skipping down a little, how many of these were reared in country homes? They knew little of luxury. They did not spend their youth in amusement. Many were forced to struggle with poverty and hardship. They learned early to work, and their active life in the open air gave vigor and elasticity to all their faculties. Forced to depend on their own resources, they learned to combat difficulties and surmount obstacles, and they gained courage and perseverance. They learned the lessons of self-reliance and self-control. Sheltered in a great degree from evil associations, they were satisfied with natural pleasures and wholesome companionships. They were simple in their taste and temperate in their habits. They were governed by principle, and they grew up pure and strong and true. When called to their life work, they brought to it physical and mental power, buoyancy of spirit, ability to plan and execute, and steadfastness in resisting evil that made them a positive power for good in the world. Now, I've heard the argument, but everybody grew up rural and on farms and in the country in biblical times. But even Moses, Moses grew up in a palace, right? But what did he have to do before he was prepared to do the job God called him to do. He, if you remember the story, he had murdered an Egyptian and he fled to the desert where he served as a shepherd for many years before coming back prepared to do the tasks that God had called him to do. So that's a little bit of a, some spiritual reasons to move to the country. I also wanted to share um, some personal stories. These are not mine. Um, I emailed some of friends and asked them, can you just share with me a couple of pictures um, from your life and just a short quote about why you think, like sum it up, why do you live in the country with your kids? Why do you work so hard to keep up a farm on top of regular life with your children? Um, so this person said, my kids get lots of free play. They run around barefoot and climb trees. They learn about hard work and where food comes from it 's a way for my kids to see god 's presence in real ways they see evidence of God all around them this is a this is a family they have three children um, their oldest is six and three and then they have a six month old and they live on a small far- small farm here in Michigan. This is a family um, from Texas and they do Flowers for market, their family does, and both parents also work full time. Um, But this family says Our family has made the choice to live simply so that our children can grow up surrounded by God's creation and see His display of love firsthand. To be able to participate in the creation experience by planting seeds, watching them grow, and harvesting the fruits of our labor draws our hearts after God. The joy we experience on the farm is a glimpse of what God must have felt after creating all the splendors of this world and makes us that much more appreciative of our creator. And this family, some of you may recognize (laughs) these people, are from Michigan. Uh, They wrote a lot, so it's not on my slide, but I'll read it. It says, from the day our kids came home from the hospital, we've been taking them outside. And for both of them, it's their favorite place to be. We feel very blessed to be able to raise our children in a country setting and provide them with daily opportunities to explore God's nature. Time spent outdoors is full of so many blessings. One, outdoor family adventures equal great bonding time with our kids. We all love to be outside, and the best memories we've made as a family have to do with the great outdoors. Two, Our kids are constantly learning and developing important skills as they spend time outdoors. They are cultivating that sense of wonder and curiosity so important for children. They are learning to play simply, creatively, and independently. They are developing observation skills and knowledge of nature. As they hike, climb, and explore, they are learning what their bodies can do and how to challenge themselves in safe ways. Three. Gardening is one of my favorite activities to do with my kids. Our son's favorite thing to do is just dig in the dirt. He's 14 months old. Since, since she was two years old, our daughter has been helping me plant and harvest. Gardening has taught her to enjoy fresh veggies and greens. She loves to eat the produce because she's a part of growing it and caring for it, and it's rewarding. And four, time outdoors has made our kids healthier and happier. Our children rarely get sick. A healthy diet combined with lots of outside time strengthens the immune system. It's not only their physical health that benefits, but also their mental and behavioral health. When our children constantly get time outside, they are happier and better behaved. And this is my children. Um, I just wrote, my children are living richly. They get to experience so much. They are learning about life and death and about hard work on the farm. They are developing resilience and stamina in our outdoor adventures. They are running wild, climbing trees, catching snakes, building towns with mud and rocks, and learning about their natural environment, why it matters, and what it teaches us about God. They do dangerous things sometimes, but in a safe and careful way. In this manner, they are developing better self-awareness and risk assessment. So... Um, that's some of our reasoning. This is that was our why. Now I want to talk a little bit about city living in the country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> some of you are laughing. Um, I know a lot of people who have put a great deal of time and money into purchasing country property, country homes, and then their lifestyle doesn't change. Um, they still spend most of their hours inside. They go to work, they come home, they watch TV, they go to bed, and they get up and do the same thing over and over again. And they're not spending time outside in nature and engaged with nature. And they're not taking advantage of all of the opportunities right outside their door. They're living life fast-paced, and they're not connecting with their creator.
1: Yeah. So, so actually, a few environmentalists have been have been saying recently <coughs> that you're actually being more environmentally friendly if you're going to live this way in the country to stay in the city. Because if you live in the city, if you live in the country and you're not going outside, you're not doing things in the country, but you built a house, so you, you affected an ecosystem by building that house, but you're still not taking care of the land there, and then you're driving farther to work, and then the truckers have to drive farther to bring you food because you're not growing your own food. They said environmentally, you're actually more detrimental to the land than if you had stayed in the city where you had stayed inside, you had not planted your garden like you aren't now, and now they don't, the truckers don't have to bring food as far. Interest, it's a very interesting concept. So be thinking about, it's not just moving to the country, it's what are you doing in the country.
0: And the other thing we want to stress is it's not even about where you are. You can live in the city and still have a country lifestyle. It just takes a little bit more thought and creative energy. But you be intentional about spending time in nature and outside. Maybe that's your Sabbath tradition to go somewhere to go hiking or kayaking or biking. Um, Maybe you go for evening walks. It's a growing thing for communities to have community gardens. You can visit natural areas and nature centers around you Go camping. Camping is a great adventure, and you can go away to the country for a little while, and then come back to your city homes. Start a garden, maybe in your backyard, in your flower beds that are already existing, in window boxes on the rails of your apartment. It doesn't—you don't have to grow everything, but start growing a little bit here and there. Have pets if it's possible for your family. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about animals. Chet already talked a lot about how they're healthy for you, physically. Um, encourage curiosity, read books and study nature topics and look for nature where you are mm-hmm.
1: so my brother my brother lives in Denver, Colorado, and they live just outside of downtown like they 're in the city they 're in the main part of the city and they have a small house and they have a little tiny yard and i 'll tell you his his wife is also an amazing gardener, and you walk you go to their house and they will spend an hour. They can easily spend an hour telling you about the different plants and the, the garden that they have, and they live in a, I'm telling you, a really small yard, right? If you've uh, ever heard of Curtis Stone, Curtis Stone Urban Farmer out of Canada, he now, I believe, owns a place that's outside of the city, but for years he was promoting actually growing your gardens in the city, and he had a very proficient and a very, um, a very great business by having small hoop houses actually in the city. And if you ever just look him up, Curtis Stone, you can see how small of an area he is producing a lot of food. You know, there's been a lot of, there's been estimation that for your, all your major cities, if we all, if the major cities were producing foods, you can produce foods on, on uh, the tops of buildings, produce foods in your yards. You would, if they really were doing it correctly, They would only need to spread the food production out just by a few miles and be able to feed everyone in most major cities uh, in America, specifically. So, oh, go ahead.
0: Oh, the last point on there is you pick farms. Um, And that's something my children and I still do as we're establishing orchards on our property, because that takes a long time. Um, But we go to local orchards and we pick fruit or often... If you're doing a lot of food processing and canning, if you go and ask for their seconds or their drops, you can get things very discounted. And then we can them or freeze them or dehydrate them and we process that food. So you don't have to actually own your own apple orchard to make your own applesauce. There's a lot of ways to find the produce locally and find it more, much more affordably um, and then still be more self-sustainable that way.
1: In in Stephen Runell's book, Outside Kids in an Inside World, he explains that two of his children were born in Brooklyn, New York. I feel like it doesn't get a whole lot more city than that. And so how do you give your kids an eye-level view of nature there? So they began to identify birds that landed on their patio, walk down the sidewalk, and they were bringing home dandelions and lamb quarters, which is another plant. They were bringing them home to eat, picking them out of the sidewalk and eating them. He snuck his boy into Prospect Park, to fish for spawning bluegills. And he said there were no signs that said I couldn't fish there, but I really didn't want to be confronted. So we snuck in and we went fishing. Um, He says during Hurricane Irene in 2011, his young son, which was very young at that time, he goes, I took all his clothes off and I put him in the sandbox and I had him experience the power of nature. And he says my son still talks about that to this day. They were living in Brooklyn New York. There are so many things that you can do when you're living in the city, even if you can't go out into the country, that you can experience nature with. He says, just look at the raindrop and explain, if you want to get more scientific, look at the raindrop and explain how that raindrop then goes down and goes into the ground and then where the groundwater goes in your area and how it's, you're running out to the ocean, where it's going. He goes, how the winds are changing and how that's affecting things. He goes, you can really um, just be part of nature no matter where you're at
0: maybe not quite that extreme, but at least that's what the mom and me is saying, but, you know. (laughs) All right, so we want to explain a little bit about what we do and how we've made some of the things work. So we have a small garlic farm in northern Michigan. We live just outside of Charlevoix, if you're familiar with the towns in the north, Um, and we grow garlic for market. We sell it One, it's going to be two farmer's markets this year. And then we sell wholesale to a local uh, farm store. And then we also do herbs. We dry herbs and sell herbs and herb blends um, for market. Um, We've tried a few other things, um, which we'll talk about. And um, we've cut some things out, which we will also talk Mm -hmm. about. (laughs) Go ahead.
1: So, even if you feel like you're not very handy, you've never built anything before, no problem. Come talk to me because I've never, I had never built anything before. Uh, so, this hoop house on the left was bought, so this little hoop house on the left was bought from a neighbor down the road. Um, we cut it apart. It's really heavy duty gauge metal. Uh, we cut it apart and then I had to weld it back together. I'd done a little bit of stick welding, like a little bit of stick welding in maintenance in college. I had never used a wire feed MIG welder in my life. Bought, that, b- bought a welder with my dad. We went in and bought a welder together. Both didn't know how to weld. Did some YouTube videos and welded. Don't look at my welds, but it stayed together. Okay, so we, so you learn. Yeah, you learn things as you go, and there's a lot of resources online to do that as well. Um, we put some, I, for the boards on the bottom. I wanted to make sure that it didn't fall apart, so we made. I just use composite decking boards. Right, they don't rot. And it's it's worked out, but you and we found them
0: very cheap on sale. We did. It, we really like, just kind of stumbled upon it. We like, were wandering around the hardware store, like, what are we gonna do? We don't want it to rot. Cedar is very expensive. You don't want to use treated wood anywhere near where you're growing the food that you're gonna eat. And we were wandering lost, and there was a section there where they had like, I guess it was the last few pieces of a of a this composite decking, and we were like, well, let's try this. Now, um, we haven't researched it. Composite decking may not be the best thing to use. I don't know. Maybe there's chemicals leached from that too, but that's what we used, Um, and that was just one of those we stumbled upon it by chance, because five years ago when we started this, we knew very little, Um, and I guess maybe we should go back a little and how we got into this in the first place. When we got married eight years ago, We never thought we would be farmers. I had grown up on a farm and Chet had grown up on a like a small hobby farm. Um, But I don't think either of us really planned it. But as we were in our first house, I was still in college and I like just bought, I was flower gardening, landscaping in my rental because there was nothing there and it was ugly and I didn't like it. And then I started planting basil in the windowsill, sprouting it and growing it. Um, and then we moved to Maine after I graduated, and I had my first real teaching job. And the house we were renting, they had raised beds that were just sitting there. So, of course, what do you do when we get there? I'm not sure we even unpacked. We were just like, well, let's plant a garden. Why not? So we went to the store the first week we were in Maine, and we bought seedlings and put them in the raised beds and uh, so that was great. We we started, and there was apple trees in the front yard of the house we were rented. Oh, and we had, even in the dorm, we had a friend who had an apartment, and we would go pick up apples, and we'd be canning applesauce, because I grew up canning, so um, a couple of friends and I, we would can applesauce in the kitchen of a friend's apartment. Um, so So even though we weren't farming, like we were doing things.
1: Right, no matter where you're at, even if you aren't, if you aren't able to do maybe a full-scale farming, you can always do something in in your house or in the small yard that you have.
0: But for us, one thing led to another, and we moved out of that rental in Maine into a different rental, and there was no garden, so we asked our landlord, hey, there's a lot of land, I think the house was on five acres, Three acres. three acres, do you mind if we start a garden? And she said, no, you go ahead, do whatever you want. So we a neighbor, we didn't have a till, a neighbor saw Chet out there with a hoe trying to break up sod, and he was like, do you want me to rototill that for you? (laughs) And he did, and our gardens were beautiful in Maine because of the location that we had chosen. There had been a fire there a few years ago, and it really increased the soil quality. Anyways, so as we were growing, Chet, started spending more and more and more time in the garden. I was very pregnant, so I wasn't really loving the garden that summer, but Chet was out there all the time. And, go ahead.
1: Yeah, so then we started looking at, you know, how can we maybe make this work into, into a business, right? So we wanted to grow something that we could, we could market that could help pay for farm expenses, because one day we wanted to be on a farm. We were renting a place at that time. So when we were in Maine, we bought different books, we called and visited different organic farms, just called them up, hey, can I come visit you, just, just wanted to see what you're doing, and learned a little bit about all all these farms were doing, and eventually we came across lavender farms. We were like, man, lavender, that's super cool. So we started going to different lavender farms and visiting them, learning about the distillery, how their distilleries work, how they made them, we said, man, when we move, wherever we move, we're going we're to build a lavender farm, that's going to be awesome, and we studied all these different types of lavenders, the intermediate, the whatever. And then, we, and then we decided to move to Michigan, and we said, all right, let's type in Lavender Farms, you know, Northwest Michigan, and like, I don't know, way too many pulled
0: up. There were a ton right. of Lavender Farms so, in Northern Michigan.
1: So we realized Lavender was huge in Northwestern Michigan, and we, weren't, we knew as far as what we were gonna do, that we weren't gonna be able to really affect that market very much. So then we kept, well, so what were you gonna do? And we kept reading some books, and we went to organic farms, and we, they showed us garlic. One farm showed us garlic, and we started talking to him. He said, yeah, I sell all of this right away. Like by August, I'm completely sold out every single year. And so I started looking up garlic farm. Where can I buy garlic? And this was the end of summer and in Michigan area, and there was nothing. Everybody was sold out. I said, garlic it is. We're going to try garlic. So in Maine, we bought 25 pounds of garlic. We planted it, and 10 pounds of that garlic just rotted in the soil. Like, just did not grow. We sent it to Michigan State University. They said, well, you, they said, like, you pulled it too early or something. They just had no idea. There's
0: there's not many diseases that can affect garlic. There's, like, two or three issues that garlic can have, and they're all very serious. Um, So we sent the samples of our failed crop, because the bulbs were still in the ground, to MSU for diagnostic testing, and they sent it back and they said, there's nothing wrong with this garlic. You just missed your harvest. Right.
1: In June.
0: Uh, in June. You and harvest garlic in July. We, so we, our other garlic was growing just fine and we were about to harvest it. So we, we still don't know what happened. <laughs> yeah. um, but that was our first, very first experience with growing any kind of garlic. Right. And I just wanted to add, going back a little bit, we did spend a lot of time going to farms in Maine where we lived and talking to the farmers, and touring their farms, and seeing what they were doing, and asking questions. And I will tell you, if you are interested in farming or gardening, most farmers are very happy to help you. Most of them will share as much as you are willing to listen. And a lot of the companies that will sell you farm goods are the same way. So don't be afraid to just call people and ask questions. They have a wealth of knowledge that will help you so much. So call people. Just Sometimes it's a little bit out of your comfort zone to call up a local farm and say, hey, I want to get started farming. Can I come talk to you and just learn a little bit? Or I have gone to, when we first moved to Michigan, I stopped at a local nursery, and I went in asking, this is when we were first building our first greenhouse, and I went in, and they had greenhouses, and I said, we're building a greenhouse, and I have no idea where to buy greenhouse plastic. Can you just point me in the right direction? And they were so helpful, and they they told me, well, this is the company we order from, but they won't ship it to you because we weren't commercial at the time. We didn't have a business license at the time. time. Um, and, And he said, but I can order it for you, and you'll just have to pay me for it. And so he ordered the plastic for us, and we picked it up, locally, and that was how we built our first greenhouse. So don't be afraid to ask people questions. Most farmers, the, the farming and gardening community, is very, most of them, very, very willing to help. And, and not asking questions because you're uncomfortable, like me, or because maybe it's a pride thing and you don't wanna look like you don't know what you're doing, sometimes that's me too. Um, it really just hurts you in the long fr- on the yeah. long run. So just be willing to ask. It saves a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of stress.
1: Yeah. So for example, we started. By, so we wanted to produce, increase our product of garlic. So we bought some seed. The only difference between garlic seed and not seed is the size of the garlic. If you buy garlic seed, it's usually over two inches this is the diameter of the head of the bulb, and less than that, they say, oh, it's just garlic. You can plant it. It's the only difference between the seed and not seed. And you plant each clove as a separate garlic plant. So I bought some garlic from Tamarack Garlic Farms, Tamarack Garlic Farms out of Wisconsin. He's excellent. He teaches agriculture in the local schools there in Wisconsin. And I started planting it and started asking him questions. And he would just keep like lit, like pages of just information he would send me and give me information. So like she's saying, definitely ask farmers. They will help you out. And in fact, last year I was ha- having so much trouble with weeds and I said, you know what, I think maybe I'm just going to do plastic. and <laughs> Because he had done it, and I said, how did the plastic go? And he basically told me it did not go well. He goes, if you have a high deer fence, great. But if you don't, he goes, the deer are just going to step all over it and destroy it, and you're going to be out all your money for your plastic. So just asking other farmers of their experiences will save you a lot of time, hassle, and money.
0: And that applies whether you're trying to grow just for yourselves or if you're trying to run a farm. We do the garlic and the herbs as our farm but we also do a whole lot of homesteading type stuff, right. which is where we're talking next. Did you skip the other slide on purpose? Which one? That one. Nope. Okay. Right. Um, so one of the things that we thought we might do um, is we watch, there's a the documentary called The Biggest Little Farm. And I don't know how many of you have seen it. It's great. It's a great documentary. It's very inspiring, but it's um, they use the Allen Savory method to build up the soil in their farm which basically they use livestock and grazing rotations uh, to to build their soil quality with cover crops and then the animals that graze and then their manure adding compost into the soil. And so we naively were like, this is a great plan. Let's do it. So we bought, go ahead.
1: Well, I was just going to say another book really good is Dirt to Soil. Yeah. And that's really what I base this that's off Gabe of a lot Brown, too. Brown,
0: Dirt to Soil.
1: Dirt to Soil, if you want to do rotational grazing.
0: So we were like, well, this is a great plan, and we dived in maybe a little too quickly, and we bought a flock of sheep, <laughs> a small flock. We bought seven sheep. Um, I, I don't have any pictures of the sheep <laughs> up here, um, but we we kept them for just short of a year. We did have a successful breeding season. Everything was going really, really well. They were our where we had the sheep grazing. The soil looked phenomenal. The plants there, you could clearly see on the fence line where plants were growing better inside the pastures than outside, and it was wonderful. We also bought a flock of, what, 40? Well, we bought chicks, but they grew to be laying hens, and we were like, well, this is great. We'll sell the eggs. The chickens are helping work the soil as well, and they do. The sheep and the chickens did their jobs wonderfully, but Chet works full-time. I work part-time, and I'm a mom, and we were spending so much time and energy and money managing livestock that after less than a year, we were like, something's got to give. This isn't working. This isn't, this isn't what we want to do with our lives. And we're not spending our time with our children. So go ahead.
1: So yeah. So we also bought a great Pyrenees dog oh, yeah. as well. Great Pyrenees puppy, which is awesome. Friendliest dog in the world. But so this was going to be a big change, right? Just a year ago, we have said, okay, 40 chickens and a bunch of sheep. And so we were over like 15 sheep at this point. And everybody's like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, you're doing all this stuff. <laughs> like my brother called me a month later. He's like, so how's all your animals doing? I said, oh, great. We've got 12 chickens. We don't have any sheep. And the Great Pyrenees dog we sold to a farm that has 40 goats.
0: Because like, he was a working dog. You can't right. take a dog who has grown up with a flock of sheep and bring it in the house. We tried. It's terrible. Right. He was not happy. Like, he needed to be with livestock. Yeah,
1: that's, that's his job. Anyways, that's what he did.
0: What, what the point of that is, like, don't be afraid to try new things. But also don't be afraid to say, you know what? This isn't what we want. And to, to like, let it go. Maybe there's a little bit. For me, there was a little bit of, like, Well, we failed or a little bit of embarrassment because people are like, what are you guys doing? But you know what? We loved it. It was very enjoyable. It was just too much. We got in over our heads and we couldn't handle it. And we decided that, you know, our kids were suffering because we were always working. And so we quit. And we, because of the way we had worked it out and because we sold lambs to, um, for breeding stock, because we bought really high quality registered sheep, because, sheep. because we wanted to sell breeding stock. We weren't interested in finishing them out and selling meat, like that wasn't something we wanted to support, which I guess we would be anyways, but we would be selling lambs was our thought process. Anyways, we realized it wasn't the direction we wanted to go and we let it go. And that's another really important learning curve is to realize when things aren't working for you, and don't worry about all the other, what other people are gonna say or the, the thoughts of, well, maybe we failed, and just let it go. We've been much happier since. So now we keep about a dozen chickens at a time because we supply um, a couple of our neighbors who are family members and our family with eggs because there's, I, I, I don't eat eggs that we didn't grow, basically. <laughs> um, there's a huge, huge difference between eggs that are raised on good food and eggs that you buy in most grocery stores. Um, but also, like, our kids love the chickens. I mean, they walk around the farm with chickens in their hands. I, I wish I had been able to find a picture. Um, our kids will, like, put them in. They have this little, like, green gator thing that's electric that a family member bought them. And they'll set the chickens in the passenger seat and drive around with chickens. And it's so good for them. Um, and when we got rid of the sheep, the kids were a little sad, so we bought them goats so that they still have they have pets, but it's easy. It's manageable. We're not trying to move animals, and yeah. we'll figure out eventually, because our biggest thing was managing. We have a lot of property that we're not using, and we don't know how to manage it, um, so we're still trying to figure out what to do with all the extra land that's just fields yeah. that are lying fallow, um, and we'll get there. <laughs>
1: I think with livestock, too, what our kids have really come to understand, too, is a lot of livestock, when you raise livestock, and if you're raising it, if you're raising it for meat, and if you do eat meat, because you don't understand exactly what meat entails. Right? There's a lot of people in the world that, that just will go ahead and eat meat. I mean, I have relatives that will eat meat and say, well, I would never eat it if I knew where it came from, because I don't want that personal connection. If you are one that, if you are going to eat meat, definitely, and that's what we explained to our kids, because we were raising Katahdin sheep that it were, were meat sheep. These sheep were raised, we want to sell them as lambs, that's our goal, but some we did we did butcher and we had sold. And they need to understand, if you are going to eat meat or if you are raising livestock of this, you need to understand where it's come from and what has to happen for that to happen, right? I think there needs to be that understanding. So a little bit of hobby things that you can do right now, uh, we do maple syrup for our home and we don't sell any of this, we just keep it for ourselves and we give it away to family and friends. And... Easy way to do it. I am no like professional maple syrup boiler, Um, but I took a I took a little oil drum, and you can take a barrel stove. You can buy a barrel stove kit off of Amazon. From Silver Creek Maple Equipment, you can buy this 18 gauge pan, and you can cut the top off that oil drum, put some angle bars on it, and set it there. Feed it with uh, wood, and you're good to boil it down. How I do it is I actually fill it. It fills about 15 gallons of sap. I boil it down most of the way, not quite all the way to about a third fill it up again boil it down to a third fill it up again boil it down close pour it off into a pot take it inside and then I finish it off inside in our house and when you get it up and I used a hydrometer at first and it was a little thin finally we went to just 219 degrees you boil it to 219 degrees you're done pour it off and, and you're you're good to go how we tap our maple trees is we use these simple small maple tree taps with a 516-inch drill bit. You just drill a little bit, tap the taps in, uh, hook a tube up and tube into a bucket, just a five-gallon food-grade bucket, and the the sap fills up in there. Just make sure you put a lid on that bucket because other debris will fall in it. Very simple method. You can totally do it. Um, You can make it super complicated too, and you could make it a business if you want. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm starting to look at tapping when it's becoming above when it's becoming above freezing during the day and below freezing at night. The ideal temperature is like yeah that fluctuation because it's bringing the the sugars up from the roots and then dropping them back down. And so the ideal temperature is like 38 to 40 degrees during the day and then it gets below freezing at night. But I'll start when I look at that window. And so we're looking at end of you guys are like so Southern Michigan. You're looking at you're like about end two of two weeks ahead of us and end of February, thir- thir- fourth week of February, kind of in there. I'm usually looking at first week of March up in our northern region. But you're looking at where you're, when you start seeing you're above freezing during the day and it's more regular above freezing during the day, low freezing at night, just go ahead and tap your trees. Your trees will, the taps will remain, I think it's four to six weeks. Four, I think it's four weeks for sure. Four, four weeks your taps, like your tree's not going to grow and close them off in four weeks. So you have four weeks time frame.
0: There is, yes. and, and if you ever have kids that go up to Campus Asable for outdoor school, if they go in the winter, they often will do the maple syrup honor. Um, we really enjoy doing maple syrup because, one, now that we have the equipment, it saves us a ton of money. I don't like to use a lot of sugar in our cooking. I use maple syrup because for us, it's a lot of hard work, but it doesn't cost us any money, and this hard work is a bonding and educational experience for our families. For instance, in this picture, this is all maple syrup that came off of our trees. Why is it all different colors? Because early season syrup is that light gold color, and late season syrup gets darker, and the darker syrup has a higher sugar content and has more vitamins and minerals in it. Um, your grade A maple syrup is the light gold stuff, your grade B maple syrup is the darker stuff. Um, done with maple syrup? Go for it. Okay, this is our favorite one, gardening. <laughs> um, our kids have grown up in the garden. Um, that first picture is our son at about a year old in our garden in Maine, um, just crawling around eating dirt while I worked in the garden. <laughs> um, We don't want... I never let my kids eat handfuls of dirt. Like, let's not uh, get crazy. But like he did, they they usually will spit it out. But, you know, putting a little dirt in their mouths is actually good for them. Um, Here he is a year later. This is our... No, I guess it'd be two years later at our first garden in Michigan. When you're first starting a garden, the first couple of years are very rough. I'll just be honest. It takes years to build good soil. It takes years to get weeds out of your growing area. Um, but anyways, our kids have grown up doing it and the older they get, the more they, they always play around us while we're working in the garden. Um, we actually put their trampoline in the garden. In the garden. <laughs> so they're near us, they're they are in the same area as we are. They see us working, they help us, but we don't force them to help us the whole time we're there. We're out there a lot. Um, and and the older they get, the more they're, they're wanting to help naturally, especially when we have fun tools. They always want to use the fun tools. Um, and they do more and more every year. Um, just a little bit about how we grow. If you're going to start seedlings, which I would encourage you to do so, because not only do you save a lot of money that way, um, the price of a pack of seeds is about the same as buying one plant. Um, and I can grow 30 tomatoes out of a pack of seeds, for the same price as buying one tomato start um, and it's a great experience for our kids and you don't have to have a fancy setup. These are LED lights because when you're starting seedlings that are going to go out into the garden, you can use an LED light. You don't need the broad spectrum lights that you would if you were trying to grow a plant completely.
1: You can also from like Home Depot or Lowe's just get a broad spectrum fluorescent light, a two-foot light fixture and it works. It works great. And, it's, and it's, it's affordable, it's not your more expensive grow lights. We have some of the LED lights, literally found them, I think it was on, on marketplace. marketplace, someone was trying to- Most trying of our
0: house them, so. is furnished from Marketplace. Yeah. Um, but we just zip tie the lights to, a, shed, to a, a metal shelf and we grow in these trays. You guys, you can grow in anything. Um, I would highly recommend seed starter mix to plant your seeds in because it it just makes for healthier seedlings. And it's a lot easier to germinate seeds in a seed starting mix. But people have used eggshells and egg cartons and salad green like plastic clamshells. There are a million things you can do. There's also a method called winter sowing that I have not done personally, but I know a lot of people who have had a lot of success with it where they cut a milk carton and put their seed starter and their seeds in it And then they put the top back on the milk carton to create a little greenhouse. And they put them outside in the early spring before you could plant. And that's how they start their seeds. We use a soil blocker, which is in this far picture on the left. We bought this soil blocker from Johnny's Seeds. And I love it. If you're planting a lot, it's well, well worth your investment. Um, It does grow healthier transplants because you never have plants that are root-bound. And what that means is if you've ever gone to a garden center and bought a plant, and when you take it out of the pot, there's like a mass of roots at the end, that's called being root bound. And that's not really healthy for your plant. These, because there's nothing around your block of soil, they're air pruned. Your roots are air pruned. So they don't, they stop growing, basically, until you put it in more soil. So if you're timing it correctly, this makes for very healthy transplants. It's also better for the environment because we're not using... Plastic trays, um, it's just dirt, it's compacted dirt that our seeds are growing in, and they transplant very quickly. I go out to a plant into my garden and I just like break them apart and pop them in the dirt. I'm not taking each thing out of a plastic container to plant. just:
1: yeah, just to understand we do we don't use as many plastic trays, but we do use still the 10 by 20 plastic plastic trays where we can put the soil blocks in because these are 16 are they 16 blocks? Soil blocker?
0: Uh, 20, 20 20? blocks.
1: 20 block soil blocker. So (laughs) you can do three of those in one of the flat 10 by 20 plastic.
0: There's smaller versions of this too that just make four blocks at a time. Mm -hmm. It's a handheld soil blocker. Uh,
1: Uh, Johnny's, Johnny's like, yeah.
0: Yeah, are we making the dirt blocks with the gadget? Yes. So what I do when I'm making my soil blocks is I get a tote of my seed starter and I pour a bunch of water in it and I mix it and my kids love this because everybody gets really messy. And then I use this, this machine in that picture, that silver machine on the far left, and I push it down into the soil and I like kind of wiggle it around and push it down hard to compact the soil. And then I pick it up and I set it in my plastic trays and squeeze and the soil blocks come out. It, this is a soil blocker. Um, and the best place I can recommend is Johnny's Selected Seeds. They have several different sizes. I have the stand-up 20-cell blocker. There's a smaller one that makes four or five cells the same size as this that is significantly cheaper. Um, and if you're not growing tons, I would recommend that version. Um, yeah. Yeah. And-
1: and the reason behind seed starter too is that some people say, well, I can just use potting soil or whatnot. The reason behind seed starter is because it's a looser soil and it's got the perlite in it. It allows your roots to immediately be able to penetrate through that really fast, and it grows a better root system on the seedlings much, much more quickly than you would move into potting soil. So I move them. So once I, once I start, I don't have, so I would, I don't have an exact distance. So the
0: question was, how high above the seed trays do you keep your lights? Um, We keep them just a couple of inches over the plants. And so we don't even turn a light on until seeds are germinating, which means until we start to see them poking out of the soil. And then we keep the light just a few inches above and we raise it as the plants grow because you never want your plants touching the light. Um, and then if we notice, which we did this year, have some of that. You are always learning as you grow and garden. Um, some of our plants were more sensitive to the light than others, and we had to raise a light higher than we normally do because for some reason, those plants were not doing well under the light, and it was they were overheating because of the light. So.
1: And that could depend on just which, which lights you go, you go with, but just keeping them a little bit above it and raising them up. I honestly don't have a good system. I use Twine. I come down there every day, and I'm like, oh, and every time I twine a little higher. Okay. All right.
0: Uh, We're running very much out of time. We could talk a lot about farming skills. (laughs) Maybe we need a class about that next year. Um, You pick farms and harvesting. This is my kids in the coats. They're harvesting carrots in November, end of November. This was our Thanksgiving meal. So you can learn to grow throughout the seasons. Um, how we make it work, we've talked a lot about that, but the biggest thing is grow slowly. Start where you're at with what you have. Once you've learned how to do that, then move on to the next thing. Don't try to do it all at once, unless you really want to be tired.
1: We didn't, we were able to borrow a tractor, but all of the implements for that tractor, for our garlic and for the fertilizer, and and whatnot, we didn't add unless we sold enough to be able to add to that with our garlic. So that's how we, we've grown very, very slowly with it, but that's that's how we've done it with that.
0: Read, 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 watch YouTube videos, listen to podcasts, talk to other farmers, always be learning. A good farmer, a good student is always learning and set boundaries for your time because the work will never be done. So just decide at this time, we're stopping, and we're going to go have fun. That's something we've really learned in the last couple of years and say we're going to work till 4, and then we're taking the kids to the park. Mm-hmm. Or So you just have to set boundaries, especially when you're homesteading and farming.
1: The work's never done.
0: So what do I do? We talked about that. Um, start where you are with what you have. You don't have to wait until you can move to the country to do any of these things. Or if you live in the country, you don't have to have a big farm. Just start small with what you can. Um, If you do feel like you're called to move, to go to the country or to do this lifestyle, but you don't know what to do, I think it's just important to to start moving. To start, if you believe God is calling you to do something, whatever that is, um, you just have to start moving in the right direction. It is essential that we make a move in the right direction. How do we know what God may have in store for us if we do not begin to look and see? There is much to be gained by getting the mindset toward the country. So just start, start where you are. Um, this is a slide with full of resources. We talked about Johnny's Selected Seeds. Um, farmer's Friend, if you're wanting to build a hoop house, if you're looking for silage tarps, weed tarps, these are great. They also have a documentary series called The Good Life, and it's all about farmers and they're very well done documentaries, very inspiring. Irrigation King or Drip Depot, that's where we, we irrigate everything now. Yep. Wonderful time saver, that's where we get that stuff. I,
1: Irrigation King, I would recommend Irrigation King if you've never done Drip before over Drip Depot. Yep, and the only reason is, is because Irrigation King explains a little bit more how to do it. Uh, drip Depot, I think used to, and I think their website might have changed, so it's just a little bit more difficult, but both you can get all your supplies Am uh,
0: Mi Gardener on YouTube, <laughs> He's, he's a great channel with Michigan-specific growing techniques, so that's a good one. Um, Acquainting agriculture, I have a booth. This is the company I work for. We have a booth in the information booths um, if you want to learn more about that. Elliot Coleman has a lot of great books about winter growing. He lives in Maine and grows 10 months out of the year in an unheated hoop house. And if he can do it in Maine, we can do it here. <laughs> Um, The Adventist Agriculture Association. You can Google them. They have a tremendous amount of resources. They have recordings on Audioverse that are great, and they have a yearly conference where you can meet with like-minded people. It's kind of like a camp meeting for farmers. Um, Recommended resources for canning and food preservation. Um, The biggest thing I could say is learn the difference between pressure canning and water bath canning and what foods are safe for what. You can look at the USDA website, Michigan State University Extension, Canning Diva, she has a book, several books, and a website, um, and then an Excalibur dehydrator. We have several. This is the one we love. Um, so those are some great things for food preservation. <sighs> Sorry, I'm flying through this. Okay, Ad Agra, Adventist Agriculture Association. Um, we have just written a curriculum for K-12 through 12, as well as a book for home gardeners coming out ne- this month or next month. If you want to learn more about that, you can check out our booth. I do have a short video if it will play. Um, I, do I have sound? I don't know if I have you don't sound. You do have sound. Oh, that's a bummer. This video is cute. But
1: but that was the soil blocker there that you just saw yeah, I used. So,
0: so this is a, I'll, I'll see if I can get it to play at my booth. Um, but this is a school in Tennessee that is using our program, and they're sharing their testimony about the program. They use soil blockers to start seeds. They're growing winter crops so that they can grow during an academic school year. Um, and this, these concepts have worked for home gardeners, too. This program is great for our Adventist schools, which is who it was designed for, but it's also great for homeschoolers and for anyone who just wants to learn these winter-growing techniques. Um, the high school author is Anna, uh, Anna Perea, and she has just done a phenomenal job doing a lot of the hard research for you. I will tell you, I grew up gardening, and I have read a lot. And her book, the high school book, which is being turned into a home grower's book, is the best book I've read on, on growing. Um, so, yeah, anyways, I'll try to get this video working in the booth because it's super cute. And we don't have time for questions, so if you have questions, uh, just stay back, and we will be happy to talk to you. I'm going to quick say a prayer, and then Gail has an announcement, and it's time to go. <laughs> oh, are you going to pray?
1: Yeah, let's pray. Dear Holy Father, God, thank you so much for the opportunity to come here and just learn about, um, again, your second book like we did Throughout this week, and Lord, I just pray that as you impress upon our minds, whether we move to the country, whether we live a country lifestyle in the city, Lord, help us to just be an example to our neighbors, to our friends, and to be uh, taking care of your nature and, and your world, like you've asked us to do. We thank you so much for the opportunity to learn here today. We our prayer, Amen.
0: To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org/audio twenty two or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.